We're finishing up a series. We've been going through the middle chapters, chapters two through four of, of Hebrews, and um, we're going to finish that up today. In this section, the writer talks about Israel's exodus from Egypt and their journey to the promised land. Millions of Israelites headed to the promised land. Only two of the original company arrive, and the rest died in the desert. And the writer to the Hebrews performs a spiritual autopsy, and he identifies the spiritual sickness that claimed their lives. Um, Why did so many children so many children of Israel die in the desert. A couple of things it indicates in terms of symptoms, they rebelled and there was a sense of bitterness. They didn't like moving from place to place and not having a home. It says they were disobedient. And we've looked at that word. There's different kinds of disobedience. But they suffered from a disobedience that's rooted in disbelief. So it was the sense that they couldn't trust God to do what he promised that he would do. And so they didn't obey him. And it says as well that at the deepest level, if you kind of look to the root, it says they were unable to enter because of unbelief, because of unbelief. So the bitterness and the disobedience and the rebellion all were rooted in unbelief. What kind of unbelief? Unbelief is general. Uh, Is there something specific? And there is something specific here. There's a specific kind of unbelief. God said, it says biblically today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The unbelief is related to something that God commanded them, spoke to them, said to them, which was enter my rest, enter my rest. And they looked around at barren land and empty shelves and said, what? Enter rest in this place where we don't know where we're going to end up. We don't know if we're going to be provided for. You promise, but we can't see the provision. You tell us to go, and then the cloud moves, and we don't know where it's going to stop. And sometimes it's a pillar of fire by night, and we don't know when it's going to go and when it's going to stop. So you're telling us to rest. How can we rest when we don't know? And that's what they dealt with. This is the unbelief they dealt with, rest-resistant Unbelief, that's the problem. And in the midst of this rebellion and this restlessness and unbelief, the writer peers into the heart of God and thinking about what God is dealing with. What would you imagine the writer would express about God? Um, What he reveals is surprising, to say the least. In a world where evil runs amok, the writer indicates that God at some level is at rest. Uh, it's a mistake to imagine God restlessly overseeing world events, wondering how things are going to turn out, nervously glancing here and there. One of the defining attributes of being God is that you're at rest because nothing can challenge your purposes. If you're really God and you can do whatever you want, therefore nothing really can stand in your way. And if nothing can stand in your way, nothing can make you restless. And that's what the writer is indicating. Our restlessness, and we do get restless. I love the fact that you included that song. Our restlessness doesn't make God restless. Uh, look what it says, the writer. He writes to them and he balances uh, God's sympathy and God's sovereignty. 
we kind of read 4.11 through 5.6 and just try to get a flow of the argument. Follow along and see if you can catch what the writer is saying, and, and we'll talk about why he's saying it. It says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so what it says there in terms of a specific command, and it's the strongest command that the Bible has. It's, it says, make every effort to do this. And what it says, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by following the same sort of disobedience. And what this tells us, learning to enter God's rest is priority one spiritually. That's what it's indicating. Hard-heartedness, bitter rebellion, and disbelief-based disobedience are all rooted in restlessness. And we experience those in our lives. And if we want to deal then with the hard-heartedness and deal with the rebellion and deal with the disbelief, then what it indicates, what the writer is indicating, God telling, here's what you do. You enter his rest. What do we do to deal with rebellion? Enter his rest. Hard-heartedness, enter his rest. Disbelief, enter his rest. That's what we're told. In order to increase our response, ability, to God, we need to enter God's rest. Um, there is a seat, I'm just going to call attention to it, it's kind of a last call, we're going to do Entering God's Rest Seminar this Saturday here from 8.30 till noon, there's no fee for it, but we are asking for you to register, we have over half a dozen people, so we want to know how many are here, so we can make sure there's enough space and enough materials, so I uh, would encourage you then, if that sounds something interesting to you, then sign up for that, and um, we'll do that this uh, Saturday. In terms of why we need to enter God's rest, why we would even think of having a seminar like this, <clears throat> surprisingly, it says, it, I think it indicates that we need to enter rest because of the influence of things that make us restless. And one of those things is very surprising, I think, the Word of God. And when it talks about, well, let me, let's read what it says. In verse 12, it says, in verse 11, make every effort to enter God's rest, and then it goes right to this. Well, okay, why should I do that? 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God described in this passage is the word of God that existed at the time. This is 50 AD, so the only word of God that existed were the 39 books of the Old Testament. So that's the word of God it's talking about, the first half of our Bible, not the New Testament, but the Old. The Old Test- the New Testament didn't come for another couple hundred years in the early part of the 4th century. And what it says relative to the influence of the word of God, the Old Testament, all are naked and exposed. And the image there is of total exposure and utter defenselessness. There's no defense against it. Again, what it envisions is a sacrificial victim on the table with someone standing over with the sword exposing the neck. It's a fearsome place to be. And what it's indicating then, kind of surprisingly, is that the Old Testament of the Bible, if you're reading it right, is not going to make you very comfortable. You're going to feel exposed and somewhat defenseless. It's asking you to do things that are very difficult to do. It's asking you not to do things that are difficult not to do. And to feel naked and exposed is what this writer is indicating. And because of the influence of the Word of God, what it tells us to do is enter God's rest, which is, well, how do you do that? How do you do that? How are we supposed to enter God's rest? Here's where divine sympathy becomes necessary. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. How can we stand before the word of God and have some confidence when we feel judged by it? And here's what we are told. We have the Son of God, and the Son of God brings us or bears a sympathy. He comes alongside us, and his influence causes us to be able to enter the throne of grace with confidence. When judged by the word of God, a high priest who understands human weakness is invaluable. Without the intervention of a merciful high priest, we are crushed under the weight of the word of God. The Old Testament word of God is unyielding. Just like the commandments were written on stone tablets, heavy, burdensome. And there is wisdom there, but it also is crushing. And if we don't have one who brings a sense of sympathy and understanding, we are crushed under the weight of what God asks of us. But fortunately, what God understands is sympathy is necessary. That's why God the Father sent God the Son. Why? So that you could have a sympathetic high priest who understands, I know exactly what it feels like to feel the weight of the Word of God. Jesus never sinned, but he felt the weight. He felt the weight. He understands what it feels like to be a human under the weight of divine commands and wondering, have I done enough? 
Have I done what he asked of me? Have I not done what he has declared that I cannot do? Jesus understands what that feels like. Connecting with a merciful high priest makes it possible to enter God's presence and speak freely with him. And what we're going to find, this is what God asks of us. It says to come to the throne of grace with confidence. What that means is to speak freely. Here's what God wants. Even though we have been found deficient, he's saying, I want you to come in. What God is saying, come talk to me and speak freely. And that's a difficult thing to do. That's why we need a merciful and faithful high priest. And that's what he modeled for us. The proof of connection, look what it says about Jesus, Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus approached God with prayers and supplications. Jesus talked to God a lot. And what we know, he woke up a a long time before daylight, and he talked to God. And he expressed what we find here, prayers and supplications, to the one who was able to save him from death. When it talks about save him from death, at that time, death was not just considered to be an event that happens at the end of life, not to a Jew. When a Jew talks about death, death is seen as a dark power that kind of hangs like a fog over life. Death was a tyrant that terrified and enslaved humanity. It was seen not only as an event, but as a power. That's why if you look at the Psalms, the Psalms talk about death, and and it describes it, the righteous are beset by the pangs and terrors of death, And death is seen as something that drags one down into the domain of death. Death is seen as something frightening. And Jesus asks God, asked God to save him from death. And he prayed with loud cries and tears. And what we know from this description, when Jesus prayed, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wasn't just being polite, you know, just... He didn't kind of wipe it away here. There was loud cries and tears. Jesus was demonstrative, and he was also in pain and suffering. He was frightened. How could Jesus be frightened? Did he not know that he was going to go back to the Father? Did he know that? Absolutely he knew it. Why was he frightened? Because Jesus was both God and man. He had both divine awarenesses and human fallibilities. And so there was a part of Jesus. He was embodied like we are. He entered a body. He entered the world like we do through a womb, right? He grew up, experienced what it's like to grow up, experienced what it's like to be a child, what it's like to be an adolescent, what it's like to be an adult, what it's like to suffer. Why did he have to do all that stuff? He had to do it so that he could be sympathetic and he could understand. I know exactly how it feels to go through what you're going through. Now, we go through some things he doesn't, but he understands what it's like to be embodied. And he called out to God who was able to save him. Uh, it says in when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Troubled means agitated. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And what we know, when Jesus talks about that in the His sweat was like drops of blood. Jesus was sweating. He was distressed. And here's what he did with his distress. He presented it to his father. He told his father how distressed he was. And he models for us what we are to do when we are distressed. Jesus felt the pressure of distress and stress. And he's modeling for us what he would have us to do with it. Jesus was in touch with divine desires, but he was in touch with human desires as well. There's something significant here. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. In the Old Testament, what you were to offer is gifts and sacrifices for sins. And what it says with Jesus, he didn't offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, at least not in this passage. What it's saying, he offered prayers and supplications. And the same word for offer, it's the same word. So what we find then is that Jesus, um, his praying was the virtual equivalent of what the Old Testament priests did when they brought prayers and sacrifices to God. What does that mean? We don't bring prayers and sacrifices to God. We don't bring sacrifices and offerings to God anymore. We don't kill animals. Jesus introduced a new kind of worship. You don't come to God and kill something. You don't make it break its put its neck and slice it. You know know what you'd bring to God? Your distresses. He wants you to talk with him about what bothers you. In fact, it's what he commands. He's saying when we enter his rest, what we do is we don't pretend to be restless. We take our restlessness and we talk to him about it. That's how we enter rest. We bring our true, what we're dealing with, and we talk with him. That's how we enter God's rest. That's what Jesus models for us. Um, Jesus proclaimed he entered the temple, began to drive those who sold, were selling things, sacrifices and offering. Remember what Jesus said to them? My father's house is a house of, house of prayer. The word for prayer is a word where you confidently enter someone's presence and speak to them about what is on your heart. In Greek culture, the assurance that God was hearing prayer was lacking. The Greeks had all kinds of gods. And they, prayer was, um, they believed in a kind of an all-divine principle, but that wasn't personal. So they had no sense of being able to talk to a god who was listening. In fact, when a Greek was in the highest state of worship, 
They didn't say anything. They were involved in rapturous imaginings of God, and that can happen. We can be in a place where we're struck by what God does. Some of us in nature are different things. But what God is asking for us is when we become aware of him, don't be silent. Talk with him. That's what he wants. Not for us just to be silent in his presence. In fact, what he wants of each one of you. Approach the throne of grace and speak freely with him. Not about what you should feel and think, but about what you do feel and think. Be honest with him. That's what he's asking. Jesus honestly talked to the Father about being afraid. Now, that wasn't the only thing about him. He he did feel fear, but he also knew where he was going. He, But which of these things was true? Was he afraid or did he know where he was going? Which of those was true? Which was true? They were both true. They were both true. We'd like to think that our desires are either in one pile or another. We don't have that luxury. We want this and that. We are confident about going to death and are frightened. And that's what we do. And what we tend to do is we stuff one of these sets of desires because, God, we think that this is probably what he wants to hear. Do you know what God wants to hear from you? What you're thinking and feeling. Now, respectfully, but he wants honesty. And when you understand that that's what he wants and start to come to him and be more comfortable in talking to him, that pleases him. Now, many of us grow up learning prayers that are pattern prayers. Those are fine. Just don't make them the only things you talk to God about. Just talk with him. Tell him what you're thinking. In fact, what we're going to talk about at the seminar, that there's four stages to entering God's rest, and we'll talk about them. I look at me, you look at me, you speak to me, and I speak to you. There can be a, it's helpful for us to be aware of our desires. That's why we look at ourselves. That's step one. Second step is we're aware that Jesus sees us. That helps us be less frightened about going to God. So we have to think about, and then we'll talk about that this Saturday. Then the Father speaks to us. He says, be still. Be still. And then we speak to him. So I look at me. You look at me. You speak to me. I speak to you. What are those? Those are the steps to under God's rest. We'll talk more about them. I look at me. You look at me. You speak to me. I speak to you. Why do we speak to him? Because as we bring prayers and supplications, he receives it as something that pleases him. That's what he wants from us. Um, Jesus modeled something strange to Jews and Greeks, expressing one's thoughts confidently to God. He did because he knew God was listening. And to this degree, he was more honest in prayer than anyone who had ever, ever walked the planet before. You know why? Why was Jesus so honest? Because.
because he knew the Father. That's why. He knew who the Father was and what he was like, and therefore he was confident. I imagine, I want you to think of the person that you can be honest with. You get that person in your mind. You get them? Can you think of them? I want you to think of a person. You have one? What is it about that person that allows you to speak honestly? They're harsh with you, right? That's really easy to talk with somebody that's harsh. They're critical, right? They're critical. They act like they know so much more than you do. That's really easy to talk with somebody who's a know-it-all. You said, I know this, and then they said, well, I know this and that. You know, like you're always trumped. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. I didn't mean it. Yeah, yeah. What is it about the person you can talk to? They understand. Yeah. And that's what Jesus understood the Father was like. I would like to know the Father the way Jesus did. We entertain these notions about God drawn from the Old Testament. We imagine that's what God is like. You know what God is like? Jesus. I dare say, if we had been around, and if you're not self-righteous, if you're self-righteous, you would have had a very difficult time with Jesus. But if you were a moral boogerhead, you would have had no trouble with him if you would be honest with him. Jesus, I, I don't know if I can believe you or not. And he would, oh, mm-hmm. How did Jesus develop this capacity, to be honest? Let's look at the cost of connection. The proof of connection is being able to speak freely. The cost of connection, it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Being made perfect doesn't describe moral perfection. It describes somebody who's been trained. So when a priest went through the different training things, once that priest was qualified, they would say the priest was made perfect. He was now qualified and equipped to do what it is God had called him to do. That's what it means when it talks about being made perfect. He was qualified. God qualified Jesus for his office. How? By sending him to this world through a womb. Jesus suffered and died, was resurrected, and functions as a high priest because a high priest needs to be able to be sympathetic, and Jesus is. Jesus experienced human weakness and suffering. This prepared him to present prayers and supplications to God. God the Father taught his son to call on him in times of distress. This was not, this is not always easy. I want to read a couple passages. This is, I think it's three months after they walked through the Red Sea and had that water experience. A water experience is an experience where you see God's presence clearly. They, like if, these are, if this is water, they walked through the Red Sea on dry land. And then the, Israel, the Egyptians came after them and the water closed in. 
That's a water experience. When you're walking through this thing and you're aware, this is miraculous. So the whole Israelite community, again, this happened, and then they went into the wilderness. And the problem is that wilderness experiences follow right on the heels of water experiences. So they walk through the, the water, and you'd figure, oh, we're, we're good. <laughs> he's going to lead us through the wilderness. I can't imagine what he's going to do. I mean, stakes falling out of the sky. and I mean, man, you know, those, yeah, there's going to be rocks, and it's going to pour forth wine. I don't know, stuff like that. This is what happened. The whole Israelite community, just listen, set out from the desert of Sinai, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Now, that's a problem because there's millions of people and they've used all the water supply to go from point A to point B. And there's no point, there's no water at point B and there's nothing around. So it's not just that they don't have a water fountain. How can we go from point B to point C if we have no water? So what did they do? They quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Now, when they stopped at Rephidim, it wasn't because Moses was doing this. The cloud stopped. But they, they didn't talk to God. They quarreled about Moses. More about that. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. I want you to listen to this. This is what he tells him to do. Strike the rock. Okay, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So, okay, you got the deal? God's saying, okay, here's what I want you to do. Here's a rock. Hit it. And you'll hit the rock. I'll provide water for the people. Okay? No water. What do they have to do to the rock? What do they have to do? Hit it. Okay. Hit the rock. Water comes out. We're good to go. And he called the place Masa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled. Because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Well, God was wondering, why are you quarreling with Moses? When who is the one... With the pillar of cloud, who's doing that? God's doing it. So they don't talk to God because we can't be honest with God, can we? He might strike you down. So let's not talk to God about what we're distressed about. Let's blame our husband and our wife. Let's complain about them. Again, you're going to complain about, but why do we complain, but we don't talk to him? That's what he wanted them. You're, ask, you're acting as if I don't even exist. You're acting as if I'm like the Greeks think, like a divine principle. I want you to fast forward now. 39 years. 39 years later, they come to the same exact place. Most people had died by this time. Joshua and Caleb are the only two. I'm sure they learned their lesson. Right? I'm sure they did. And there, now there was no water for the community. And this is again 39 years later. Same place, still no water. Okay. And the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, 
If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. So what they're saying, all the people that fell in the wilderness, they're saying, I wish I was in a grave like them. Because at least I wouldn't be thirsty anymore. And um, he goes on, why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die of thirst? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grains or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, listen, take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes. What did he tell them to do last time? Hit it. What does he tell them to do this time? Hit it. Speak to it. What's he trying to get them to do? What's he trying to teach them? To speak to God. Speak to God. That's what he's trying to teach them. I'm sure they did that, right? Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So... Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you do not trust me. Enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. You will not bring this community into the land I gave them. What did he want them to do? Speak to the rock. Why don't we speak to the rock? Why do we strike people with our words? Why do we strike people with our criticism and our contempt? We strike people with blame and accusation. You know what God wants us to do? Speak to him. Speak to him about the things that distress you. Well, God doesn't want to hear that. Yes, he does. And he'll accept it as worship. Bringing prayers and supplications is how you worship him because he knows we're dependent. He doesn't want your pretense. He wants your honesty. That thing that you're worried about, talk to him about it. He's not offended. He's offended when there's a lack of honesty. Where do we learn that? That's what Jesus modeled. Jesus learned obedience. Literally, it means under listening. Jesus Learn to listen to God and to speak to him. He experienced fear as he approached death, and he cried out to God in his distress. Jesus didn't blame anyone. He experienced distress, and you know what he did? He wasn't afraid of his fear. I've been with people who, again, when you find me at my death, if I'm struggling for breath, at some point I will know where I'm going, but I will also be afraid. What's wrong? See, it's human to fear 
when your body starts to shut down. That's human. Did Jesus feel that? Yes, he did. What did he do? Well, I can't think that. I'm going to die in two or three days. I can't. i got to push that fear down. You know what Jesus was? Jesus didn't fear his fear. Said it. God, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but thy will be done. It's amazing. Jesus prayed to him and was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. God wants us to express our distress to him. That's what we are to bring to him. That is what we are to offer him. That's what he wants us to teach. That's what he wants to teach us. And again, if you're hearing me right, this is something that has been very compelling to me, even just recently. He really does want you to talk with him. He really does. And in your distress, he wants you to bring that to him. Hey, God, I, I don't know. I don't like my job. I, it's kind of like I want to stay in it, but I don't. And just tell him about what you think. That's what he wants. It says the last verse, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It says we cry, Abba, Father. There's something you need to know about that word cry. It doesn't sound like this. Here's what this word cry. So we cry, Abba, Father. Abba. Abba. That might be one word for speak, but it's not. This word for cry, it implies distress. So what it's saying when you're going to say Abba, it's going to sound more like, I'll try not to be real loud, John. So, Abba! That's what it is. That's the sense for cry. It's a cry of distress. The Spirit tells us we're children of God so that in our time of distress, we can cry out to our Father, our Abba, as Jesus did. That's the sense. It says, um, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provide we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Becoming children of God does not mean that we don't suffer. This is the last point, and I'm done. Becoming a child of God doesn't mean that you don't suffer. Becoming a child of God does not mean that you will not suffer. Becoming a child of God does not mean that you will not suffer. You will, just like Jesus did. What God wants you to know that you are his child, and therefore, when you suffer, you call out to him and speak to him. That's what it means to be a child of God. One who knows the Father enough to know that the Father wants to hear. That's what he, that's what he asks of us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and then... All the cloud goes one way for one person and another way for other persons and friends get led to other places by God, pulled to other sites where he has things for them to do and say, Jane, Lisa, come on up. Uh, 
This is Jay and Lisa, uh, good friends for a long time to this church. They are headed to um, Rapid City. They take an employment, and I believe this is last day. Um, can I see a microphone? I would pray for them, but just anything? Yeah. I just, you know, we, very honestly and sincerely, we love you all. Mm. And those of you who know us well know that this is the hardest thing we've ever had to do. Mm. All, all I can say is, uh, you know, may the good, uh, good Lord, the giver of all good things, richly bless mm. each and every one of you. Let's pray for you guys, huh? Father, thank you for the fact that um, tell us go into all the world and that you're with us always, even to the end of the age. So you have been with Jay and Lisa and you are with them and you will continue to be with them. They, You are like a river that flows out of their past through their present and into the future. And we will reconnect one day. We'll see them, but it's different will change and thank you that you don't change that you will never cast them adrift and you will never leave them behind and you promise you will cause all things to work together for good give them the grace to be able to to come to the throne of grace and speak freely as they experience both blessings and difficulties in this new place in Jesus name amen Okay.